Finish your taking your seats. If you turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Before us this morning is a story to fascinate young boys and a story that's abused by would-be spiritual dictators and hacks. From boys in Sunday school classes to Benny Hinn with his white Nehru collar jacket to Creflo Dollar wanting a new jet. This story seems to capture a spectrum of interest. I think you'll soon see why it captures the attention of the sleepiest young boy in Sunday school. Well, a young boy who is typically fascinated with potty humor. And also how it can be abused by spiritual hucksters wanting to protect their little empires and their lavish lifestyles. And they'll employ David's principle here, and they'll employ it out of context as if they themselves were Saul. And that's an ironic <laughs> defense of their lavish lifestyles and ways. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24, the, the writer, if you would remember where we were last time, the, the writer had Saul going off after the Philistines. Well, the writer's not interested in Saul and the Philistines. He's just interested in getting back to the story of Saul pursuing David. He ignores, it doesn't tell us, uh, how that conflict went. And he wants to get back to... Uh, show us something else here in chapter 24 and 25 and 26 in particular. We, we have in these chapters three stories driving home the point that the man after God's own heart is the one who's actually in control, humanly speaking, in these stories with David and Saul now. And yet he is waiting upon the Lord, the king of kings, who's in control of him. That he's the rightful king once the king of kings enthrones him. And he's going to wait for the king of kings. And the story that's before us is, breaks down easily into three parts. We'll look at each one of those. But let's hear the entirety of the chapter. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, and it seems like Saul's got spies everywhere. They're always bringing him reports. He was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men just happened, just happened. David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David 
persuade his men, and it's, it's a little stronger than that. David cut up his men with his words. He's arguing with them in whispered tones. So David persuaded his men with these words and didn't permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. He's Yahweh's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I haven't sinned against you. Though you hunt my life to take it, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand, my hand, shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. and said to David, You're more righteous than I. For you've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The word of God for the people of God. A story, three sections. First section. First section we see in verses one through one through seven. A choice or a test. A choice or a test calling for discernment. Is this quote unquote chance encounter between Saul? And David and his men in the cave, is, is, is this providential in order that David could kill the king? Or was this an opportunity to trust God, even when it looked like he has that opportunity? Is this providence 
to kill? Or is it providence to test? To test the faith of David? Providence or temptation even? I think about uh, the story of Shakespeare, Macbeth. Macbeth, as this play opens up, is confronted with witches. Three witches. And in their promises or their prophecies to the character Macbeth, they prophesy that he's going to be king. They prophesy that he's going to gain another estate. And then after gaining that estate, he's going to be king. And he gains that estate. He becomes Thane of Cawdor. And he gets it without having to do anything. It, it comes to him. Because the previous Thane had been a rebel, and he got killed in the battle. And now Macbeth is Thane of Cawdor, without having to do a thing. And then he has to decide, am I going to be king without having to do a thing? Or do I need to take matters into my own hands? And when King Duncan says that his son is going to follow him as the next king, Macbeth makes the decision, I'm going to have to take things into my own hands. And when he does, he begins the plunge into hell that the whole play is revealing to us. He took matters into his own hands, and it did not go well. David has the opportunity to take matters into his own hands here, doesn't he? And initially... It seems as if he's going to do it. He talks, then he goes and cuts the corner off the robe, and it's, it's as if he's going to take that piece of fabric, turn back to his guys, and say to them, have at it. And yet what happens to this David after he cuts that corner off the robe? He's convicted. He's convicted of what, of what he's thinking about, of what, what, where this might be leading. He's convicted by his own conviction. He's convicted by his own conviction that God had set this man, Saul, apart for God's purposes. God had Samuel anoint this man, Saul, to be king. And it was... God's prerogative to take this man, his anointed, off the throne when it was God's time. It wasn't David's prerogative. David realized that if he had taken that next step, he would be going against God himself. He was convicted by his own conviction. This providence really wasn't tempting him to kill, but it was a providence given to test his trust and his own commitment to Yahweh. David got it by the moving, as we would say, of the Holy Spirit bringing that conviction. But his men didn't get it, did they? What are you doing? Here he is. And he has to cut them up, literally, with his words. Whereas David does the right thing, praise be to the Lord, 
He does the right thing after being convicted of wanting to do the wrong thing. After being convicted by his own conviction. And when I think of David, then inevitably I have to go to the son of David. And I think of the son of David. And I think of the son of David being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. I think of him being tempted with all the kingdoms, not just one, not just one throne, but all the kingdoms of the world that can be yours, Jesus. All you got to do is what? Bow down. Jesus did the right thing perfectly, doesn't he? Jesus knew because Jesus the man was a student of Scripture a lover of the Psalms, and Jesus knew that he had been promised in Psalm 2 that the kingdoms of this world would belong to whom? Would belong to him. God, the Father, would give the kingdoms of the world to him. He knew that. He trusted the word of the Lord. He trusted Psalm 2. But he knew that God would give him the kingdoms of this world not by bowing down to Satan, but by going where? To the cross. He knew that the kingdoms of this world would become his because of Psalm 22. Go to Psalm 22, would you? Psalm 22. First verse. You know, Jesus takes this psalm. This is Jesus' psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? You know how that psalm continues to unfold. And you know how he says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. You know it speaks of the mocking of Jesus. You know it speaks of these wild bulls encompassing him, strong bulls surrounding him, opening their mouths at him like a roaring lion. You know, the psalm speaks of the one who is suffering as one poured out like water, all of his bones out of joint, his heart melting like wax within his breast. You know that portion of the psalm well, but do you know the last portion of the psalm well. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. David could have taken the throne by his own hands but thankfully as he's convicted He waits upon the Lord. Jesus knows not one throne, but all thrones belong to him. And he waits upon the Lord. And his holy waiting took him to the cross. Second, I want us to see back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, a petition or an appeal for God's justice. Saul finishes his business, if we might put it that way. And he goes out. 
And can you imagine being Saul, walking out of the cave, and all of a sudden hearing somebody call out from behind you? My Lord, the king. Whoa, he's shocked, right? As you would be too. He turns around and he sees David doing what? He sees it's David, but what's David doing? He's bowing down. He's, David, it's this, it's, it's unfathomable for me. He's bowing down before this king despite this king hunting him down, despite this king's hatred, despite this king's wickedness, despite this king's abuse, despite this king's insanity. Don't pass over that quickly. David was a fallen sinner just like us. David was tempted to complain about rulers just like us. How do we treat those that God has placed over authority over us? How do we treat those in authority that God has placed them in their positions? Don't go too, pa- too fast past David's bowing. But David doesn't pause long enough to let Saul get his wits, does he? He launches in into telling Saul what had happened. He launches in into condemning Saul. He really does with that proverb. He launches in and he, and he vindicates his own action, doesn't he? He does all these things, but more importantly, what does he do? He takes his case to the Lord. He doesn't trust, he doesn't wait, he doesn't necessarily even hope for Saul to have a change of heart. Oh, you spared my life. Oh, I'm going to be really nice to you and you don't have to worry about me from here on out. He doesn't, he doesn't focus on that. Instead, where does he take his case? He takes his case to the Lord. His conviction not to harm the Lord's anointed, you see, rested in his faith in God's justice. God would judge. God would avenge. God would handle this. David has no need, and really it seems at this point, no desire to try to take God's place. Trust this matter into the hands of the Lord. If, and I don't like this language typically, he lets God be God, if I might humbly say that. Verse 12, notice it. He lets God be God. He trusts God. God's going to do this. And yet this is no weak or soft appeal to God's justice. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. May the Lord do it. And if that's not strong enough for you, let me just encourage you to go to the Psalter. 
and read imprecatory psalm after imprecatory psalm after imprecatory psalm where the psalmist cries out that the Lord's vengeance would fall upon the enemies of God. Yes, I know we as Christians read those psalms through the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know we read those psalms and we pray that those psalms, those sort of prayers be answered by God, sovereignly turning enemies into brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, I know Jesus calls us to do what? Love our enemies. But I also know we are called to love the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of Almighty God. Sometimes we go to those imprecatory psalms and we say, whoa, those are harsh. And when we wrestle, or even worse, when we denigrate those cries for vengeance... My fear is that we betray our relatively soft lives as Western Christians. My suspicion is that our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, whether it's in Hong Kong, whether it's in China, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Iran, don't quite have as hard of a time with those psalms as we do. Sneaking suspicion. When we wrestle with those sorts of psalms, when we wrestle with, may the Lord avenge, we betray, I think, our sort of soft American Christianity. I think we also betray maybe a lack of understanding about the holiness and the righteousness of God. He is a holy God. He will not be mocked. There is coming a day of judgment. Judgment that should fall on each and every one of us, but judgment that will fall upon those who do not bend the knee to Jesus Christ. As Ralph Davis puts it so wonderfully well, as he oftentimes does, we commit vengeance to Yahweh, but we commit vengeance We committed it to the Lord. You are the judge of the universe. But what do we commit unto him? Exercise your justice. And I think we do it bearing in mind a justice that we deserve. And yet, and yet, the blood of Christ. In 1611, our covenant of predecessors were being persecuted by the king of England, Charles II, and his British dragoons. And our covenanter ancestors, many of them were hunted down. And one particular covenanter brother was James Guthrie, Charles Gaddon. And Charles II dictated this is what's going to happen to James Guthrie. We're going to hang him in Edinburgh. Then we're going to take him down and we're going to cut off his head. And then we're going to take his estate. And then we're going to devastate his family. This is what we're going to do. And that's what they did. 
And as ladies prepared his headless corpse for burial, placing it in a coffin, they took their napkins or handkerchiefs and they dipped them in the blood of James Guthrie. Well, one man, as men are oftentimes, uh, well, oftentimes do, made a rash judgment. Popish superstition. One lady made a defense for all those ladies when she said, we intend not to abuse it to superstition or idolatry, but to hold these bloody napkins up to heaven with our address that the Lord would remember the innocent blood that was spilled. We're going to use these to make our petitions unto the Lord in prayer. O God of holiness, righteousness, and justice, may your justice rule. Let's appeal, brothers and sisters, humbly for the justice of God, but let's await his hand. His hand. Lastly, notice, and this is going to be quick, an acknowledgement and assurance of God's trustworthiness. Saul responds. Saul responds remarkably. David did well to wait. And remember, if, if, if God could speak through Balaam's ass, God can speak through Saul. God could bring a word of assurance through this maniac of a man, Saul. In verse 19. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. David, in this moment, he waited upon the Lord. He didn't take Saul's life. Saul responds back to him. And what does David receive? You will be king. You will be king. And he received it even through the mouth of Saul. Brothers and sisters, let me just end simply by saying, when we're, take, when we're taken to the temptation to take matters into our own hands, and I don't know what that might be in your life, or when we're tempted to take the easy route, the quick route, the seemingly obvious route. Let's remember the story. Let's remember our fellow sinner, our brother in Christ, who was convicted by his own conviction. A conviction that rested in his faith, in the justice and goodness of God. And he waited. He waited. Some of you are being called to wait. To not take the easy action. Some of you are being tempted by what seems like an obvious course. But when you start thinking about it, you recognize that course of action leads you into sin. 
Do you believe that your God is gracious and merciful and that he is holy and just and wise? Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Entrust your everything unto the Lord. Children's sermon. Children's sermon. The Lord first. Jesus first. Jesus first. Jesus first. Wait upon Jesus. You will receive the word from the one who shed his blood for you. You shall reign with him in his time. Trust upon the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I don't know what your people are going through. I don't know the details of their lives. I know that there are temptations at every turn to trust in their own strength, to take matters into their own hands, to see themselves as the ones who pour out your justice, your wrath. And the reason I know this, Father, is because I face such temptations myself. Heavenly Father, help us to be convicted by our convictions that you're gracious, you're long-suffering, you're holy, and you are a God of justice. We ask that you would rain down your justice, that you would pour out your wrath, that the day of reckoning would come. Well, Lord, that's, the timing of that is, is yours. Help us to cry out that those that we find ourselves in conflict with because of our faith and those that are opposed to our brothers and sisters throughout the world, that you, by a moving of your spirit, would change their hearts and bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would raise up a mighty number throughout all the world who will bow not to Satan, but who will bow to Jesus Christ. But Father, until that day, enable us by the moving of your Spirit to trust in the sweet story of Jesus Christ and to entrust ourselves into his care. For we pray this in his name. Amen.